Welcome to the Adventures in Producing podcast. My name is Wendy Mitchell. I'm a UK-based film journalist and film festival consultant. And I started these talks with amazing producers because I don't think independent film and TV producers get enough attention for all their work. I think a lot of people don't understand what a producer actually does. So in each episode, I talk to one producer about their career and some lessons learned. I hope you enjoy. Today we have Mary Burke, the woman, the legend. I'm so glad Mary's with us. Uh, I'll just tell you a little bit about her. She is a BAFTA and BIFA winning producer like me. She's an American who is now living in London. She worked with Warp Films for many years on films like Richard Ayoade's Submarine, Paul King's Bunny and the Bull, Peter Strickland's Barbarian Sound Studio, Paul Wright's For Those in Peril. Um, then she went to work as a film fund executive at the BFI, I think for about five years, Mary will tell us, working on some amazing films like Francis Lee's God's Own Country and Ammonite, Prano Bailey Bond's Censor, Rose Glass's St. Maud, Jessica Hausner's Little Joe, Idris Elba's Yardie, Rayongo Nioni's I Am Not a Witch, and God, dozens more. So Mary left the BFI in mid-2020 to become an independent producer with her own company, Public Dreams Limited. Welcome, Mary. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's yes. nice to be chatting to you. Um, I want to know, how did you get your start? Had you always dreamed of being a film producer or did you just kind of, I think you worked in some music videos, if I'm not wrong. And yeah, sort of. I mean, I wanted to be a writer and I had absolutely no idea what a producer did. So to be honest with you, no, it was not my dream. I did not go to film school. Um, I studied writing at university um, and Spanish. And so I was very much into traveling and reading and writing. And when I realized that producing could incorporate sort of writing, but with pictures, I thought, wow, that's an amazing job. I can't believe people get paid to do this. So no, it wasn't a dream of mine. Um, how did I get my start? Um, I actually started on Chris Morris's short film, My Wrongs 1245 and 1249 and 117. I used to be able to remember the numbers, but now I can't, um, which was a BAFTA winning short. And it was the first thing that Warp Films produced. Um, I was the runner and I really um, didn't know what was going on, but because I had come from working as a sub editor at the Wall Street Journal of Europe, I knew a bit about how to write. <laughs> so I think that um, in terms of like the way the scripts were evolving, I was helping out doing that and then helping out on set. Um, and I ended up getting along very well with uh, Barry Ryan and Mark Herbert, who were the founders of that company in the early, early days. Um, and then they just let me stay. <laughs> they just let me stay in the company. And I started working with Chris Cunningham uh, as his assistant for a long time. And he is a music video director, but we were developing some ideas for, for feature length films. And, you know, he had done a lot of music videos for Warp. Um, I worked on Rubber Johnny, which was uh, an Aphex Twin sort of short film slash music video. Um, and I did a, a short for uh, Battles as well, which is a band that my husband used to manage. And, um, yeah, and from there, I think I, I was attracted to working on the scripts more than it was about, uh, you know, an, being an onset producer. I was very interested in the development side of it and kind of worked my way up that way. 
I mean, how did you even get that job as a runner? How did I get that job as a runner? Well, I was working at the Wall Street Journal Europe. So my deadline was, it was the evening edition. So my deadline was one o'clock. And then I would leave and, and go. And my husband was working at the record label. And it was not nepotistic. It was like, oh, we have, we have to like make this short film. Does anybody know anyone who will work for free? And I was like, oh, well, I guess I, I will, because I have this other job. Then I would go do the running, you know, with Barry and then go work in the pizza place, flipping pizzas. <laughs> so until about midnight. So I was working like three jobs just to be able to afford to be a runner. Um, and I guess those were back in the days when, you know, you couldn't, you, it was okay to not pay your interns. Um, and I was one of those people. And because I lived here away, this, we're talking about like, you know, 20 years ago now, um, I think because I lived away from my family, there was absolutely no way that I was going to fail. None. So it, the money kind of wasn't what was driving me. It was, or like, it was okay if I didn't eat for a couple of days, whatever it was, it was, it was like, I really wanted to make it work. Um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know, Barry Ryan interviewed me. He said it was the worst interview he'd ever done in his life, but he still let me have the job because I could speak another language and write things down. Fantastic. Um, I never knew this about the Wall Street Journal. I have to tell you that my first job out of uni was uh, as a reporter at the Dow Jones Newswire. Mm. So in a parallel world, Mary, you and I would both be very successful financial <laughs> journalists right exactly. now. Exactly. And thank God we're not. Thank God. <laughs> um, you know, when you were first on a film set, I mean, did you mentioned that you liked writing and you liked other creative things. Did you ever think about being a screenwriter or, or you know, even working in distribution or film sales? Or once you started to learn more, why did producing really attract you? Um, I, you know, I never wanted to work on the kind of sales or distribution side because it always felt like it's very far away from the filmmaking. And I think just by the nature of my tastes and, you know, who my friends are, I love the making side of, of filmmaking. And in a way, I feel like producing sort of, for me at least, maybe, maybe at one point when I was very young and I didn't have a lot of confidence, I did want to be a writer, but I just didn't have um, the confidence to sort of say that. And then writing kind of sort of, um, what's the word, became absorbed into the producing. So it is like writing, but it isn't, you know, and I feel like I've always had very good business acumen. So in a way, it kind of just felt like a natural job for me to do. And then as I went a few years into it, I realized that being a director means that you have to kind of do a very limited amount of work. Um, and I love working. So for me, you know, I like to be robust and constantly busy on lots of different projects and lots of different ideas. And I think as a producer, you can have a sort of taste that's in, that is guiding you, but you can make a comedy and a horror and a drama, and you can tell lots of different stories in lots of different ways, do TV, do film, and not be pigeonholed in the way that a director was. And I felt like in a weird way, that was very limiting. And I don't want to be famous <laughs> at all. Like I have zero interest in being in front of the camera in any way, so. Well, you have to stop making films that go on the red carpet and can then because <laughs> yeah um, no one's taking a picture of me uh, yeah. uh, at that time and <laughs> uh, you know i think the best producers are ones that can handle that that very creative side and sort of do have a vision and a taste but also as you mentioned have that business acumen they're not afraid of budgeting and schedules and you kind mm -hmm. of have to do both i mean do you 
think you're better at one side or the other, or does, you know, do some projects require more of the business brain and some projects require more of the creative brain? I think it's a question of scale. You know, if it's a really big film, you know, or a, a, a bigger independent film, like 25 million, then obviously you have more business decisions to make around who you cast, where you shoot it, like, you know, the, the production values of the story and the production values of what you're shooting. So yes, you have to ha like engage a different part of your brain in the making. Whereas if you're doing something that's like someone's passion project or, you know, quite low budget, you're there to protect the sort of sanctity of the, of the film, you know, the concept of the film and what the director and the writer and the entire crew bring to that vision. So I do think it's a matter of scale. It's not necessarily um, like you can't do both every time you make a film. It's just how much of your left brain, right brain you engage during that time. I mean, I guess my, my big black spot weakness and I would never be able to do like true comprehension of legals. To me, that is just like a brain piece that's just been like taken out and put in the garbage. I just don't have that. So in a way, you know, you have to collaborate across the business stuff as well as, as, well as the um, creative. Yeah. Well, that's why God invented lawyers. Mary? Yeah. Did God you, is there a lawyer or a legal team that you use all the time? Yeah, I use Emma Stanier, who is, um, she's a consultant and she's independent. So I'm paying good mates rates right now as I am in my new business. I'm sure that'll change. Yeah, and it should. Yes. Just she's a plug good. for a good lawyer. <laughs> she's um, you know, when you started out and we're collaborating with Warp a lot, um, what was it about that Warp sensibility that also matched your taste and also I mean do you think you helped you were there from the beginning kind of were yeah. you helping to shape what warp was I think I I mean I like to think that I was you know um when we started the company I feel like Mark and Steve Beckett and you know um in his passing Rich um Rob Mitchell had a real definitive sense of what it meant to be warp you know what that what the um quality value meant and it could mean a lot of different types of stories, but I feel like essentially meant a, a certain level of quality that we wanted to hit. And it, it meant being British. So for me, that was an exploration that I didn't really have naturally. I had to like read and learn about what happened in 1983 so that I could work on, this is England. I didn't know anything about the Falklands War. I never even heard of it, but I was working on the script with Shane for like six months um, in his house, um, trying to figure that all out. So in a way, I do feel like the choices I made, especially on the weirder side, uh, the Barbarian Sound Studios, and maybe on the softer side as well, you know, working with Paul King, mm. who's gone on to do Paddington or Richard Awadi, you know, um, who is from the IT crowd comedy side. I feel like maybe that's what I brought to it. And I was using the music to interpret what I felt like that meant and how that translated into film. I was a huge Aphex Twin fan. He's actually a really good friend of mine now. Same boards of Canada and broadcast. And when we got broadcast working on Barbarian Sound Studio. It was like one of the best things that ever happened to me. So in a way it was about, it was about bringing those two concepts of creativity from music and film together and that letting that be the guiding light in that company. So if you ask Mark and Barry, I guess they will say, yes, I did help to define that, but it preexisted me by like a good 20 years. <laughs> No, I think take some credit. You, your decisions <laughs> and the things you were working on absolutely shaped some of what Warp was known for. Um, I was going to ask this later, but since we're talking about music and um, we've mentioned you, 
your husband is Phil Canning. He's a music mm-hmm. supervisor now. And you said he used to manage battles. Um, and not just because you're married to Phil, but you know, do you seem to think a lot about music in your films? Um, and you know, but does being married to a music supervisor inform your um, knowledge of how to use music in film? Hundred percent, hundred percent. And if I, you know, he makes me stronger. Um, I think he can think about something at a at a right angle when I'm thinking of it at you know, a very skew with, and he, and he can encourage me to think about artists who I wouldn't think about as composers and bring them across into that space and make me feel very safe. He also, you know, when we were doing I'm Not a Witch, which he music supervised, he was calling up Kanye's manager and he has got the balls to do that on like a sub one million pound film. So to me, it like music always elevates very small stories um, and makes them feel more global if there's some recognizable sync music in it. But also like when we had Alex Turner doing tracks for Submarine, it just takes into a more cinematic space. Obviously we had some, you know, traditional composition in there, but it's just having an artist do something special for the the film makes it a a story in the press and also just makes it feel, I don't know, more exciting when you watch it. And he he can bring that. Um, And also, you know, we can yell at each other and it's okay, I can't yell at anybody else in the crew. (laughs) But I can yell at him if I want something getting done or I, you know, he can yell back at me. So it's fine. It's great. I enjoy it. That sounds like a happy partnership and a marriage. I like it. (laughs) And, you know, I mentioned that uh, you, like me, are American. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can say that with a little more pride now that Joe Biden is president. Um, Thank God. Yeah. Um, You're American. You're based in the UK. Um, You've done... Mm -hmm international reaching work. Um, What do you like about making films in the UK film industry or what are the challenges or annoyances? I'll start with one and project that, you know, I've seen people even with very, very micro budget just sort of say, oh, we didn't get greenlit by this scheme or we didn't get film four or BFI, so we're not gonna do it. And my friends in New York would say, I'm gonna max out my uncle's credit card and make it. So I don't like that sort of, dip. of course, soft money for the arts is amazing and needed, mm. but I don't like the mentality that you can't do something outside of that. So what, of what, what, do, you, what do you think about working yeah. okay. I do. I do think that it's a scheme. I mean, I feel like I have the right to say this now, having worked at the BFI for five years, I feel like it's a scheme heavy um, system where people want to be part of a scheme and then be recognized in that way rather than take the 50 grand that I gave you for a short and go out and make a feature. Create, like, the, I don't understand that lack of kind of commitment to just tell a story. You know, you can tell any story on any budget. You might as well just, if you have to do it with toothpicks, do it. Um, but I, I think the things I get frustrated with are more um, ambition in story and ambition in cast. I feel like there's a tradition of like, of um, identity politics that's sort of at play when anyone's ever deciding what it is they want to, whatever film they want to make first. And that doesn't feel very American to me. And um, I remember, but I remember when I did um, Dead Man's Shoes, that was the first film I ever worked on, a feature film. Um, And I was the runner and I walked up onto set uh, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know physically where I should be like placing myself. And I started speaking saying, hi, I'm Mary. How, how are you doing? Just want to say hello to everyone, blah, blah, blah. And someone brought me a cup of tea and a chair. 
and I was like, oh, I'm very cold. And they brought me a, um, a, a fur coat off the, the you know, costume truck. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I was like, this is such a great job as a runner. And they thought I was the American exec that had been flown in to Matlock <laughs> to, to do it. And I, I think it's a mindset. I, I really do think there's like a mindset here that we're like, that the UK is not America. But actually that's the virtue of working here is that we are in America. We don't have to go through an LA system of agents and all of that sort of yes people yeah. to, to make a film. Um, and you can be fiercely uh, independent up to 25 million pounds. <laughs> and then, and then you pretty much yeah. max out and have to do it like everyone else is. I mean, maybe it'll change now that Netflix is, is doing, you know, films here and is gearing up even more, um, you know, on the TV side, maybe that will change a bit, but for now, it, I think what's always frustrated me and what I've, I've tried to like plug a gap is in the ambition toward finding an audience for that particular film rather than just to make a film. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for the honesty there. And <laughs> what was the first film that you lead produced? Oh, um, it was called um, A Complete History of My Sexual Failures. The Chris Waite. Yes, yeah. um, and it was a documentary. So my, sorry, my nose is itching. It was a documentary about a guy who had broken up, you know, had gone back and interviewed all of his ex-girlfriends about why they dumped him. He's just a total loser. Very funny. So comedy documentary. Um, and it went to Sundance and that was my first time ever going to Sundance. So exciting. Uh, and uh, my parents came and that was so awesome. And then I felt, and because it was, because I did, had done Rubber Johnny, and the other film there was called Donkey Punch that we had. <laughs> I didn't work on, I didn't do that, but, but yeah, that one was there. And then A Complete History of My Sexual Failures. I really think my parents thought I was working in porn. <laughs> you much wealthier right now had you actually been working in porn. Um, yeah, because it's hard to, um, for sometimes parents to understand. I mean, how do my parents understand I'm a film festival consultant? What does that, I don't even understand what that means. You know, <laughs> that's not a job yeah. you can put on your tax form. Um, but my dad sort of understands now because he calls me up and tries to pitch me lots of films all the time. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, don't green light your dad, um, I don't think. Um, <laughs> and yeah, what were some of your, during those, some of those films I mentioned uh, at Warp, um, what were some of your favorites? Was, was Bunny and the Bull or, you know, for those in peril, went to Cannes, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I love them all because they just feel like, you know, children all from different fathers, perhaps, <laughs> you know, it just feels like, you know, you're trying to express a different idea with each film that you back as a producer. Um, and they all have a different special place in my heart. I feel like Bunny and the Bull was the first time that I did a, you know, fiction film. And I think that my naivete was what got me through it because I didn't realize that I was making essentially a 10 million pound film on 1 million pounds with, you know, 500 effects. I just didn't know that, that I was biting off more than I could chew. And it, it was like a baptism by fire. It was really difficult shoot. I was eight months pregnant, um, had to fire the, the DP on the first day and get another one. It was so insane. I was throwing up the whole time, uh, sleeping on set because I couldn't stay awake. I mean, it was like madness, but somehow I sort of feel really um, like grateful for that speed 
speed um, learning on that film and Paul is an absolute genius. So I'm glad that I got to be like the tiniest part of his stellar career. Yeah, it's funny. There's a lot of people I think who take uh, some credit for Paul King, Simon Farnaby, and you've really supported these guys. Yeah, um, I love Simon Farnaby. He's been in almost everything I've ever done. I think he's great. <laughs> so funny. Uh, we're doing a golf film now, which I know you know about. Which um, is yeah, I, I can plug this because Go ahead. Um, Worlds Colliding, my husband is really good friend. My husband, Scott Murray, is really good friends with Simon Farnaby. My husband's a sports journalist and wrote a book called The Phantom of the Open with Simon. And that's now being made into a feature film starring Mark Rylance, which Mary has backed. I'm so excited about it. I'm, you know, we've been talking about this film for almost 10 years, it feels like. Um, and I'm so, so happy that it's gonna get made and it looks beautiful. Yeah. So, and it's I mean, Greg it, Roberts directing. So it has a real, you know, you could easily make like a really bad ITV, no offense ITV if you're watching, but <laughs> you could make a really bad ITV Sunday night film about golf. And that is not this, it's very artistically ambitious and it's gonna be great. Yeah, it's gonna be wonderful. Yes, um, I might be a little bit biased on that one. Um, you know, when you were at the BFI, mm -hmm. well, I guess, first of all, why did you want to go there? And I, maybe because I, we were friends by then, but I sort of feel like I could see Mary Burke. I could see your taste coming through and I loved it. I mean, it felt like the Greasy Strangler, which is just <laughs> wonderfully bonkers film by Jim Hoskins. I just loved it. And it was like, oh, BFI has put a little bit of money in that. Like that, I could see your taste coming through yeah. that and you know I think you can see sometimes a bit of that at the BFI but um did it feel why did you want to join the BFI and did it feel like you could shake things up a little bit from the inside mm. Mm. I mean I think at, at Warp we always thought of ourselves as a bit, bunch of punks and maybe everyone else thought of that about us as well so there was nothing I could do to like delete that aesthetic or you know thinking from my mind because that's all I ever knew but when I, I wanted to go to the BFI because I felt like I wanted to make a change a bit about what, what gets financed um, of scale, but also like the amount of projects um, in the British film landscape. But also I wanted to kind of like spread my wings a bit, you know, and work on much bigger films than we were working on at Warp. Um, and that's no criticism to Warp, that's just to say like where we were in our company cycle. Um, and also, after 13 years of working there, you know, I didn't own it. So in a way it felt like if I was gonna evolve as a producer or evolve into the next phase of my career, I had to make a change that would somehow service whatever I was gonna do next. So in a way, I never felt like I was gonna work at the BFI for 20 years, right? But I felt like I could go in, nail it and leave. And that's kind of what I did. Um, <laughs> the Greasy Strangler, I mean, that is the, it's so funny that you mentioned that one because when that came in, I was like, this is, this is closest to a perfect film that I've ever seen. Like, it's just so good. I absolutely love every bit of it. And yes, there's big prosthetic swinging dicks in it, but it made me laugh so hard. And I remember the lawyer at the time, who's no longer there saying, you, you must show this to Amanda Neville immediately. It's going to destroy the credibility. I was like, really? Do you really think so? And Amanda loved it. So 
she really liked it. She, I mean, some other people did not, but she really did like it. You know, I was actually going to make a joke. I wonder what an Amanda Neville thought. And I'm really glad to hear that. We can't pigeonhole people, you know, the way that Amanda Neville was the CEO of the BFI at the time. Yeah. She really, really loved it. So, so then I felt like after that, that was maybe breaking all the rules that I had kind of carte blanche to make choices that were, you know, that was the edge. I couldn't kind of go beyond that. Um, so I felt like I was making choices. Yeah, I guess partially based on my taste, but also trying to give opportunities to different people who hadn't necessarily made films before. And I think it coincided with the changes of the BFI to represent, um, you know, to, to work with people on their first, second, third and fourth features rather than kind of the old guard of films that were there at the film council time. So I think it was just coincidence, but, and that, you know, I had met Francis before I even got there. And when I saw that he, his film was in development on the slate, I said, oh, I definitely want to work on this one. That was God's um, Own Country. We should God's Own Country, yeah, sorry. God's Own Country. And, um, you know, I've made some lifelong friends with Josh and Alec and him on that. And I hope to continue to work with them in my new company. Yeah. And you, you know, you can then see somebody like Francis then take another step forward with something like Ammonite, which is a, yes. such a beautiful, powerful film. And it's such an auteur piece of cinema, I think. Um, Kate Winslet, you know, all of a sudden Francis Lee is working with Kate Winslet, but in a, a way we haven't seen Kate Winslet before. Is that the sort of biggest, I don't know what the budget was, but was that a bigger scale of production for you or you had already worked on films around that level? I mean, I had worked on other films that were, you know, bigger than that. Um, I think the subject matter meant that the budget wasn't huge um, and Kate and Sersha, you know, weren't charging their normal rates. So in that way, uh, you know, we were able to make it in a low budget way. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the thing there was that when you're a producer and you're making a film with a first time filmmaker in an independent production company, more often than not, um, you know, the problems of the shoot lay at your feet. And so the second feature usually, if it's a hit, goes to the States, A24, Amazon, whoever, and that producer's sort of not uh, seen as part of the sort of success of that movie. And I think I really, really enjoyed that part of working at the BFI would be able to be like, okay, if I can, if it's possible even, like, you know, to be able to continue to invest in someone who's made a small film and then a second film and then a third film. There's a lot of pride that comes from that because you feel like you're helping them shape their voice to get onto a bigger canvas. Um, and you get to really know them, you know, on a personal level in a way that when you make one film with someone, you do really get to know them, but you're in the wars. Um, and having that bit of Zoom was fantastic. But yes, for, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it was a bigger film. Yeah. Cool. And did you enjoy, I mean, it sounds like you've taken a lot of positives from the BFI, but did you enjoy being a funder? You're sort of a public servant in some ways, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I did enjoy being a funder. I like be. I like the money part of it. I like understanding what other finance. And you mean that's do. not you getting rich, because I can assure you. Oh, no. People, yeah. I am poor. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, um, no, I, I, I mean, I enjoyed the money part of like understanding how other financiers think about projects, what their priorities and agendas are, and having that sort of seat at the table internationally, you know, to hear how Bleecker Street assesses something, how IFC assesses something versus, you know, a French distributor and the differences between Film 4 and BBC because we were able to work with both of them. So 
and distributors in, in this country. So in a way it was like having like the keys to everyone's brains and it, it was so exciting for me. Um, and then to be able to lead projects that many of those financiers wanted to take on was kind of exciting. Also, as you know, a lot of the producers that come through have never produced anything before. Um, and unlike a lot of financiers, you know, I have made a lot of movies and TV yeah. and I felt like I didn't, I, I wasn't, um, I don't want to sound like Mother Teresa or something, but you know, I enjoyed giving my knowledge back yeah. in a real direct way. And sometimes that was by challenging them and maybe they didn't like it, but at the same time it was teaching. I always saw it as teaching or helping so that we have a more robust group of producers coming through, you know, the system. Yeah, no, I think it's so great when a, a funder or somebody sitting at that desk has produced, they know what the trenches are like. They know the yeah. issues that producers might come up against and how funding for this might disappear and you need this now. And yeah, no, I think that's really valuable. So, after about, I guess, about five years, thereabouts, mm -hmm. um, you decided to leave the VFI about a week before this pandemic uh, started. Great timing, Mary. Um, but no, why, why was it the right time for you to sort of set up your own shop and do your own projects again? I think, I, think, um, I don't know exactly what it was. I guess I just had itchy knickers, you know? Um, I done, just finished St. Maud. It was an absolute banger. I loved working on that film. I love Rose and I kind of felt like go out on a high. I wanted to make TV and obviously you can't make TV at the BFI. Um, I didn't want to stay on a public wage for my whole life. Um, and I just felt like I'm 40, it's my time. I've done all the learning that I can do. And I you know, appreciate everyone who's kind of taught me something along the way. I feel like I just learned as much as I could in that role. And now having your own business as well as trying to produce is like a whole nother sort of learning experience for me. And I'm, I've never been happier in my life. I, you know, I know I made a really stupid choice to do it like the week of lockdown, but at the same time, I just feel the freedom of it has sort of opened my brain up even in a more creative way than I could ever imagine. And especially by being locked in, in the house for a year, it like in a monastic way has like forced me to think about what it is I wanna do and who I am as a person. I know that sounds really too philosophical, but yeah. it's true. I'm like gonna be your Oprah. I'm gonna draw out <laughs> this. Um, why call the company Public Dreams Limited? I think it was a bit of a callback to uh, the BFI, you know, public, public films for everybody. Um, but I really do believe in dreams. Um, they, they give me messages and I kind of feel like that's what films and TV are. They're people's sort of latent, latent spiritualism that they are trying to communicate out into the universe. And I'm a total hippie. Um, and I, I really believe in the medium of, of storytelling through pictures. So in a way it felt like it fit. And I think the public, the limited part of it just makes it sound like some sort of state thing. It's made me laugh. Also, um, Daphne Oram had this album called uh, Private Nightmares and Public, no, Private Dreams and Public Nightmares. Um, and I just pushed it around and I thought that callback to music would be 
interesting whatever no one cares what you call the production company do they oh I do I'm a journalist I want to know <laughs> yeah um and you know you don't have to tell us anything specific but you mentioned you were interested in doing tv and film you know are there you know do you think you're going to work only in English language is it going to be half tv and half film what can you tell us anything yeah I mean I do have a, a few projects and actually the first three projects I signed up and had uh, development finance for were television series. So I think I was just itching to get onto them and maybe I attracted those. I'm working with a lot of the people that you might expect. Um, you know, I've got a project with Francis that I can't really talk about, but it's gonna be in a couple of years time. Um, and yeah, that that's, I think you, you, if you looked at the people I worked with before, those people would be on the list of who I'm already working with. Um, I think one that has already been announced, but I'm not sure, is um, Amriel Cotty's series that I'm doing with the BBC. And that's just in development. We're working on the scripts, but I'm really um, excited about it. And I think what that represents for me is that, is that um, I realize that I really do love genre, whether it's horror or thriller or, um, I don't know, some sort of, some sort of heightened element within everything I'm doing. And when I look across the films and the television that I'm doing, they, I feel like I'm developing them all in that space. I think that's because I feel like audiences want that right now. Maybe that'll change later, but um, for now, most of them have a sort of heightened bent to them. Nice. I mean, I think you've even brought that to documentary work that you've mm. produced. Um, do you plan to do any more nonfiction or just if something really interesting comes along, you'd be open to that? Definitely. I'm really interested to do some music documentaries. Um, whether or not I would produce them on my own is a question. I'm really good friends with Julia Nottingham and she is an absolute machine when it comes to documentary filmmaking. So I've been talking to her quite a bit about, about some projects. Um, and I really, what I've spent most of my time in the last year watching, and, and that's because I've been locked in here, is like serial murder <laughs> documentaries. And really the storytelling is so complicated and really interesting um, that I think I would, I'd be up for doing something like that, but I would never do it on my own because I kind of feel like I, that's not my production expertise. It's my story expertise, fine, but not my, not my, my production expertise. Okay. Um, and just some sort of questions about producing. Uh, mm -hmm. What can you tell us a mistake that you've made professionally that you've learned from? This sounds like a cheesy job interview question, but. Uh, I mean, I've made so many mistakes that it's really hard to like pick one. Um, mistakes. I think maybe like without being specific about any director or writer, you know, just being a bit too New York with my notes. <laughs> you know, not not softening them in a British way. And that was very early on in my career and I lost a couple of projects because of that. I didn't realize that you had to say, perhaps, maybe, have you thought about, it just was like, this sucks, what are you doing that for? And that's not, that's not the British way. No, yeah, it's I have so burned myself being some honest feet. People are like, please tell me honestly, like honest, honest. 
And even if you couch it, it's like, they'll never speak to me again. You know? I know. And, and I, I learned that, I, you know, if you go watch someone's film and they ask you what you think, you have to lie. And like, if you don't, then that's the end of that. And I didn't, at the beginning of my career, I didn't lie. I said, oh, I'm not really sure that that was for me, but I'm glad that you made a film, you know? Uh, so I would not do that now. <laughs> I, would, no, I, would... I just, you have to say congratulations because, well, mm. I mean, I actually do mean congratulations. Even if you've made the worst film in the world, you've, I've never made a film. So I do think making any film, even a bad one, is an accomplishment of sorts. It but is, of course. Vague. You made a film. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but no, I've made a lot of mistakes. And I, I think the things that hurt me most when I'm like sleeping, like wake up in the middle of the night, is um, the bad deals I did for myself. There's some terrible financial deals for myself on the basis- Just cutting producer's fees or things like that? Not taking a fee. Not taking a fee because I just thought, fuck this, I really wanna make this film and I'll just get it on the back end. There's no back end, you know? I don't know what I was thinking, but I was so young and I didn't care. And in a way it paid off because I'm where I'm, I'm at where I'm at. Um, but I couldn't afford it. Yeah. And I, I struggled for a long time financially because of, because of doing stuff like that. Yeah. What do you think people misunderstand about what producers actually do? What's the sort of myth you can bust? That, that well, in, on the independent level, I think it's that we're so loaded and that, you know, it's our job to take money from one bank account and just shove it into another. That is so not what it is. Um, also that, you know, we're the bad person who tells them not to do something, tells whoever stops the good thing happening uh, out of ego. Um, and of course there are producers who work like that, but I don't feel that that's what I do. I feel like I'm serving the film at all times um, and that any comment or sort of choice that I make about whether it's the budget or partners or whoever is for the benefit of the film, the best benefit of the film. So yeah. It's, it's, and that you shouldn't have a creative opinion. That's the other thing that always makes me laugh, especially with the newer producers, because they think, they think they're not supposed to have an opinion about the script, the casting. And you're like, well, we need, we need to know what you think as well. Um, so yeah, and that you're loaded and that you just go into like film parties every night and hanging out with Cameron Diaz and whoever else, you know. Yacht cool. parties in Cannes. Yeah. yeah. Constant, yeah. I mean, we have been on the yachts, haven't we? Yeah. Wendy, but they're not that cool. <laughs> Usually I'm in the petty majestic, you know, barely affording a beer. So yeah. <laughs> um what is your pet peeve of what people do on sets? Oh god. Besides talking during takes. Talking um, during takes. That's fine. Oh I I also cannot stand, and maybe this is from producer's point of view. Um and and it isn't, yeah, it's it's all it's across the whole department is it's not possible, just, that's just not possible. You're like, what? But you didn't even look at the piece of paper I gave you yet, what do you mean? Like it, it is possible and like it's this constant need to bring somebody over to your side when everyone should just be getting into the film because everything is possible. Yes, we have money constraints, but there has to be a creative solution to everything when we're all in it, in it for the film, not for the you know, paycheck. Yeah. That is annoying, yeah. really annoying. And I think last question, let's end on a very positive note. Okay. What has been your best ever day on a film set or your best 
moment or memory. Best day. It means you're going to have to choose your favorite child, I'm afraid. Oh, man. It doesn't have to mean it's your favorite film. Just a, a good day on a set. Good day on set. I thought you might not ask me this one because I don't. I mean, the best day on any set, on any film, is what, on the first take, on the first day, because it lets you know that you're actually making a movie. So for me, it's like the stress of everything of it might not happening. It just leaves my body and you go into the the moments where you're firefighting what's exactly in front of you. Like, you know, you've lost a location or whatever the heck. So in a way, the first days are always great. Um, my favorite day on set, I read, there was a, there was a day I really remembered and I really loved it, um, which was with Simon um, Farnaby on Bunny and the Bull. Um, and it's just like a scene where he's like, you know, asking for a condom at the door. And it just made me laugh so hard and I couldn't stop cracking up. And Simon just, I don't know, he just brings so much light into my life. Um, and I thought, oh God, you know, I really do enjoy this job. I really, I really love every moment of it. So you, you got it. I think as a producer, you always have to um, celebrate those little moments when you get into a festival or you have a good day on set and you've shot everything or you know you win an award obviously but it's not about the money it's not about trying to be you know winning the oscar or whatever it is it's just those small moments and you have to celebrate them because if you don't do it for yourself no one else will what perfect advice for any <laughs> aspiring and rising producers out there mary thank you for sharing your adventures in producing with us Thanks. And um, I should, this is the first time, and maybe I won't say it every episode, but yeah, this was a nod to Adventures in Babysitting. And you told me this is a film you like. Absolutely love it. My 12 year old daughter has watched it like 50 times. She can quote it. She even knows the swear words and when they're coming. So she says beep when they come up. <laughs> Mary Burke, you're a good American and a good producer. And <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. And thank you. next time, good luck with Public Dreams Limited. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Adventures in Producing podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. This series of talks is also available on video at youtube.com. And you can find those links at my website, filmwendy.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to bensound.com for the music. Hope you join us again soon.